The reading is taken from Luke chapter 7, starting at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The two other guests began, began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word. My name is Phil, I'm the Associate Vicar here, and it is my privilege to bring this passage to us tonight. It's a passage that's moved me many, many times down the years. Let's pray that God would do the same for all of us tonight. Our Father David prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And we do pray that you would do that tonight. Pray that there would be those amongst us who have grown dull and cold, who would see again who would be melted again by the riches of your love. Pray that there would be those amongst us who have never really understood what it means to how they can know you, the holy God, who would understand and trust in the Lord Jesus and be filled with love for you, for your forgiving grace. Do this, we pray, by your Spirit. Amen. Mind the gap is uh, one of those iconic phrases. You hear that, you know you're in London. Mind the gap. They say it because in certain tube stations like Bank, with a, where it's a curved platform, there is a large gap. And if you fall down, you end up um, becoming kind of pizza along the edge of the, the tube rail. Uh, I want to tell you about a more dangerous gap tonight than that. It's a gap that probably almost everybody in this room risks falling into. And that is the gap for those of us who would call ourselves Christians or those of us who've got some sort of interest in Christian things. It's the gap between uh, what I say and sing about Jesus, my great Savior who I love and adore and praise, and the reality inside my heart. 
See, it's very easy for a sort of lukewarm indifference to grow up over the years. It's not that I start worshipping Satan and killing people, but I come to church, I go through the motions, but they are exactly that, just motions. And tonight, in Luke 7, we'll see why that happens to so many of us. And essentially what, it, what the Holy Spirit's going to tell us through Luke 7 is, look, over the years, it's very easy for us to stop judging the seriousness of my sin by looking up to God and seeing his perfect standards. And instead, we start looking around. And I decide how good or bad I am by how you're doing and how you're doing. And when we live our lives comparing ourselves with others, the truth is we become very, very ugly people on the inside, as we'll see. Our hearts end up overflowing with judgmental pride and brittle insecurity. And they are horrible things when they characterize us. Judgmental pride and brittle insecurity. But instead, God's got something better for you tonight. God wants to say to you, there is a better way to live. He wants you to see quite how wicked you are. Doesn't sound like a very good thing, but he wants you to see how wicked you are so that you'll be amazed again how lavish his forgiveness is. Because it's only when you see how wicked you are that you realize how great his forgiveness is and you start to love him. The key to loving God is to see again our sin. Okay, just two points. We're going to look through the passage in these ways. It really is the answer to two questions. Firstly, why religious people can be so unpleasant? Why can religious people so often be so unpleasant? And secondly, why acknowledging sin leads to love? So Luke 7 verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Jesus has been invited to dinner by a guy called Simon, who's a Pharisee, and Luke focuses our attention on the uninvited guest who turns up afterwards. We don't know her name, but we very quickly find out her nickname, Sinner. That's how she's known around town. She's lived a sinful life. And given what we know of that culture and the way she's treated here, it's likely that she's either a prostitute or that she's someone known for very loose sexual morals. So Jesus is uh, at the Pharisee's house. He's reclining at dinner. The table would be floor height, and the people would be like uh, spokes on a bicycle wheel, uh, heads in nearest the table for eating, uh, tasty food on the inside, smelly feet on the outside. It made sense. So that's how you would sit at dinner. And there's this slightly distracting scene going on at the other end from the table. Verse 38, as she stood behind him, that's Jesus, at his feet weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, it is quite an embarrassing scene, and the words Luke uses stress that. It's it's blubbing. The word for crying is used of rainstorms elsewhere in the New Testament. This is Kate Winslet receiving an Oscar kind of stuff going on. It's, It's not sort of subtle weeping. She is absolutely blubbing. It's raw emotion. It's not the kind of thing you do at a Pharisee's dinner party. And having soaked Jesus' hair with her tears, she then dries them with her hair, which again causes quite a scene. It's, dis- it's kind of shocking enough in that culture that if uh, you're a married man and your wife lets down her hair in public, that's cause for divorce. Oh, <laughs> so having heard the sobs, having uh, seen the tears in the hair, you 
smell the wonderful aroma of the perfume, Chanel 5, Creed, whatever it is, and it's poured all over his feet, this entire jar. Well, what do you make of, of such an undignified, un-English, let's be honest, display of emotion? The Pharisee is in no doubt as, what, as to what's going on and what we should think. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who'd invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. It's a disgrace. That's how he views it. How can you let yourself be touched by a woman like that? You know, Jesus is meant to be a prophet. Everybody says he's a prophet. If he was, there's no way he would allow this kind of contact between him and a sinful person. And the irony begins there. He thinks, if you're a prophet, you'd know this woman's reputation. Oh, Jesus is a prophet. And he knows a whole lot more than the woman's reputation. He also knows the Pharisees' inner thoughts, as we'll now see. He can see that for all the moral upstanding, righteous rule-keeping exterior, inside Simon's heart is a cesspit of pride and judgmentalism. But the question to ask here is, why does Simon respond like this? Why is the Pharisee so ugly on the inside when he meets this uh, sinful woman crying over Jesus? Now, for the answer, you need to go back to the first couple of verses. Do you notice what word is repeated three times in the first couple of verses and four times if you go down a little bit further? Three times in verses one and two. Pharisee. Pharisee invited him. Pharisee's house. Pharisee's house. Why does Luke do that? Why, why, why three times tell us an incidental detail? Why isn't once enough? Well, Luke wants us to realize, look, everything I've told you about Pharisees up to this point is going to be really, really important in this story. Now, in one sense, we have to forget lots of what we know, because if you've hung around church for any length of time, you know the Pharisees are the comic book villains. They are the moral police, the religious hierarchy. If you watch Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials or, or read the books, they are the magisterium. They are the hardcore, nasty religious rulers. But we have to kind of forget all the things we, we, we know and just ask, what has Luke told us about the Pharisees? What is it he wants us to have in mind as we come here? Now, when uh, Jesus first began to heal the sick and to teach the people, in chapter 5, verse 21, it is the Pharisees who assume that they have the authority to determine whether Jesus is sound or not. It is them who say, look, we'll make a judgment about whether this Jesus character is kosher or not. So it's they who, who assess what he's doing on the Sabbath. It's they who listen to his teaching. It's they who watch his actions. They are, they're not quite the same. It's not like they're, they're some religious, civic authority figures. They're at the center of the establishment. And they are basically the gatekeepers. For whatever reasons, the Pharisees stood at the gates and they basically had the authority to determine who's inside the people of God and who's outside. Who's inside and who's outside? That's how they viewed themselves. And it's how the culture seems to have viewed them. We see that from 521 onwards as the Pharisees are those who are always assessing what Jesus does. But most importantly is something we learned earlier in chapter 7. Last time we were in Luke, two weeks ago, chapter 7, verse 30. Look at, we'll dive in at verse 29. As Jesus is teaching about John the Baptist, he says this, All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees 
and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. What's that about? Back in chapter 3, you can look it up um, later on, Luke introduces us to John the Baptist. And what John is doing, he's uh, out at the Jordan, uh, the river that uh, runs through Israel, and he's out at the Jordan, outside of the cities, calling the people and saying, his message is blunt and simple. It's, look, God is going to judge, and you are not fit to meet a God who's going to judge. You need to stop sinning. And the people came out in their droves, in their multitudes, and they got baptized by John, washed in the River Jordan. And the baptism was a, was a symbolic way of saying, I am my, my sin, my behavior, my life makes me filthy, and I need to be washed by God. The, the river water didn't make them clean on the inside, but it was a symbol saying, God, I, I'm not right the way I am, and I want to change. Now, the Pharisees, we're told, in, in chapter 7, verse 30, they saw the dregs of society pouring into the river, and they stayed on the bank. Because to the Pharisees thinking, well, if people like you and you and you need to get washed, well, then it's certainly not for people like me. The reason that Jesus is with a Pharisee, Luke tells us, a Pharisee, a Pharisee, is he wants us to see in the Pharisees a danger which lurks in all human hearts. And the Pharisees show it to us more clearly than anything else. And that is the danger of determining whether we are right with God by how we relate to other people, where we stand in the moral pecking order. Let me explain. If you ask Simon, Simon Pharisee, what makes you so sure you're on the inside of the people of God and somebody else is on the outside? What makes you think you're in? His mind goes to two things. One, he says, my good life, and two, her sinful life. I'm not like her, I'm in. In other words, Simon's way of thinking, I know I'm in because you're out and I'm not like you. That's the way it goes. I know I'm in because you're not and I'm not like you, so I must be in. That's the way the logic works for him. He sees people like this woman doing wicked things, immoral things that his religion has taught him not to do. And so by any any moral scale, his life is less sinful than hers by outward obedience. And so it's obvious to him, she's out and I'm not like her, so I must be in. That's the way it works. And for all the differences between us and the Pharisees, there is a great danger that we do exactly the same thing. It's called comparative holiness. And we slip into it just naturally. It's like we're born with ruts in the human heart that mean we just run this way without thinking. Comparative holiness. I know I'm in because I'm not like you and I know you're out. A few years back... um, I did a a speed awareness course, uh, purely for research purposes, you understand. (laughs) Um, And it was incredible how quickly this happened. It's just second nature. You start comparing yourself. So within about 10 minutes of this day-long course, I was with all the other people who were not serious offenders because we'd been caught doing uh, 
over 20 in a, in a 20 zone, which is just an unreasonable speed limit anyway. But we were so different from the, you know, I mean, it's to drive over 30, that's actually dangerous. You can't really stop. Whereas at 26 miles an hour, you can stop immediately. That's not a serious offence. Over 30, that can be dangerous around schools. And then, of course, there were the people doing 50 in a 40 zone. That's, you know, they were... And then there were the, the really wicked offenders at the other end of the course who had been doing 95 on a motorway, and, which I would never dream of doing. I, I couldn't. I had an old Ford Focus. <laughs> the issue was the car, not the driver. But it was, it was, I spent that, I've never felt so self-righteous or been conscious of feeling so self-righteous as thinking, this is ridiculous. I'm not like these people. I was only doing 26 miles an hour. I was the slowest driver here. Still broke the law. But that's how we operate. I, I stopped thinking about the law and started thinking about, well, compared with, I'm better than you and better than you and better than you. So I'm right. I'm good. It is why paedophiles are very dangerous to adults. Paedophiles are incredibly dangerous to adults. They're dangerous because they blind us to our own sin. You see, most of us aren't tempted in the way that they are, to their particular sin. And so we find it easy to be appalled by what they do and drawing the boundary between us and them. Because we're not, we don't, we're not tempted by that particular sin, we find it very easy to draw a massive boundary line, a big, thick, red moral line with them on one side as the bad people and me on the other side. And if I'm not like them, I must be good. They are bad, they are outside, they will be judged like by God. Me, I'm not like them. Therefore, I must be good. I must be on the inside. I must be all right with God. But of course, the same God who judges paedophiles and terrorists will also pour judgment on the proud, the materialistic, the judgmental, the unloving, the one whose sexual immorality is with people of their own age. Simon has got a bitter, ugly heart because he has fallen into what all the Pharisees did, which was comparative holiness. Don't be surprised that some religious people can be so unpleasant. You see, religion can be very helpful for improving your moral behavior. It gives you a framework and a discipline to get a grip on your life. But once we begin to grow in discipline, as the Pharisees show, it's so easy to slip into working out whether I'm doing okay by looking around. By looking not up to God, but out to others. And when you do that, your heart grows ugly. Because you're going to have to continually judge and pull down others. Because I'll only know I'm in if I can draw a line with other people out. So I'm always going to have to judge and pull down others. You see that with the Twitter mobs. You, you can only know you are on the inside and you are in the right group if you're, if you're throwing brickbats at people who are outside. You have to condemn other people to show that you're on the inside. You're one of the good guys. Also, if that's the case, then the goodness of other people is going to be a huge challenge. And I won't rejoice in the goodness of other people. I'll be insecure, unsettled by it. And I will be so delighted when good people fall because they're no longer above me. 
And as you do that, you have to become proud. You can't look down on others without looking up at yourself. And of course, you're also going to end up having to lie to yourself about the reality of your own sin. Because I, I can only convince myself I'm good and I'm in if I minimize the bad things I do. So other people, they commit wicked sins against God. I've got my, my weaknesses and my failings, slips and blemishes. And if you're like that, there can never be a, a settled, secure assurance of God's love. There will always be a brittle insecurity. Because who knows who might be better than me and who knows when I might fall. See, being a Pharisee, thinking I'm in because I can see you're out, will poison your heart. And it is so, so dangerous it is so, so dangerous because it is a heart disease that flourishes very happily here in church. It's the only sin, really, that can grow while you're killing all the other ones. The proud judgmentalism of the Pharisee. And that's why the Bible writers are at such pains to point out to us the danger. So what's the answer? What's the answer to not being like a Pharisee? with a proud, judgmental heart. Actually, it's that acknowledging sin leads to love. How is that the case? Well, let's see. Jesus is actually immensely patient with this proud, judgmental man, but he won't leave his false thinking unchallenged. He won't allow this woman to be publicly shamed by him. And he challenges Simon's ugly heart and reveals it by telling a story, verse 40. Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, when Jesus says to you, I have, a, I have something to tell you, it tends not to go so well. It's kind of like Mike Tyson saying, I would like to punch you in the face. <laughs> and that's basically what is going to happen here. And the game is going to be up within the first sentence. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Game's up immediately. He doesn't tell him a story about one person who owes a great debt and one person who's paying their way. No, it's two debtors. A denarius is a day's wage, so one owes 20 months' wages, the other two. Jesus is not saying all sinners are the same. It doesn't matter whether you've killed lots of people or whether you just fly off the handle sometimes and say harsh things to your family. No, Jesus recognizes that different things are different. But the crucial thing is that for all the differences, neither can pay. God's perfect standards are way beyond anybody in this room, beyond any human who's ever lived. And not even Simon can fail to answer correctly when Jesus turns to apply the story in verse 43. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. <laughs> Is he saying that's the first time you've done that, Simon, to judge correctly? Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, 
but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever's been forgiven little, loves little. Here's his point for Simon and for you and for me. The reason the woman behaves like this with such extravagant love is she knows she's been forgiven an enormous debt by Jesus. She knows she's lived a sinful life. She's not stupid, and everybody else has told her this. And her awareness of the depth of her sin means that she overflows with thankfulness for Jesus when he cancels that debt, just wipes it out, forgives it. Simon, however, loves Jesus and other people very, very little because he doesn't think he's got any serious sins to forgive. He feels no real love for God because he thinks he deserves God's welcome. In uh, September 2013, a a guy called Jeff Pierce was sailing back to Britain single-handed and basically ignored some serious weather warnings. And the steering on his yacht broke at just the wrong time as a massive storm was bearing down on him, which he shouldn't have been out in. And there were waves the height of this building smashing down on his yacht towards a cliff. And he was a total goner. He was going to, yacht was going to be matchsticks and he was going to be drowned. But he didn't die because an RNLI boat was launched in that terrible, terrible storm. And the lifeboat got to him just in time, managed to get him off the boat and get him to safety. And he was so grateful he spent his holiday on a sponsored cycle ride raising money for the RNLI and telling anybody who'd listen what wonderful people they were. I also actually have saved somebody quite recently. There were some tourists on Piccadilly, and they didn't even bother to ask me my name. Hardly even thanked me. Then all I saved them from was getting lost and missing the changing of the guard, so it wasn't quite such a big deal, you might say. And you see, it's, it's when you and I stop thinking we're like, a lost tourist, and instead recognize we're drowning in sin and we face the storm of God's wrath. It's when we stop thinking, my sins are a wrong turn, not all that serious, and see the reality that they are waves that threaten to engulf you. It's when I see the reality that the ugly wickedness of my sin deserves God's judgment and eternal hell. It's then that I cry out for forgiveness. And when I cry out for forgiveness, having understood that about my sin, then when I receive it from Jesus Christ, free. That melts my heart towards him. I start to love the one who should have condemned me and instead dies to save me. Now, we mustn't be too prescriptive about what it looks like. Okay, what does it look like to get this right to love Jesus? I'm going to struggle to dry his feet with my hair, let's be honest. You know, it's the, well, let's, we're, all slight, we're all different in, in what loving devotion to Jesus looks like. And of course, there'll be an intensity of feeling when we first receive forgiveness. Or when later on, uh, we, we encounter his forgiveness for sins that we've been blind to and suddenly are aware of. There'll be an intensity in those moments that does mellow over time. But in the heart of every true Christian who sees their sin clearly, there will be a love for Jesus flowing out, a devotion, an affection, an admiration for him. 
I think it also means that there will be occasions when we are so moved with gratitude and love because of a fresh experience of forgiveness that we make extravagant sacrifices for him, as this woman does. That's a normal thing. Francis Ridley Havergal wrote uh, in his famous hymn, Immortal Honours, Oh, that my soul could love and praise him more. Why is it, though, that as we grow in obedience as Christians over the years, so often we find our love for him doesn't grow, it just gets dull. So often it is because as the years go by, we become more moral, And we get rid of the flagrant sins, the ones other people can see. And the seeds of the Pharisee starts to grow in the dark corners of our hearts. We begin to be more aware of the sins of other people than the sins of me. And we forget the size of our own debt before God. We forget that since we became Christians, we haven't been paying down our debt. We've been actually accruing more debt every day. We forget that God is not just concerned with the big outward sins that we might have been aware of when we first turned to follow Jesus, the sexual immorality, the lying, the drunkenness, whatever. God's also very concerned with the hidden heart sins too. He can see them just as clearly as the other sins. He can see the pride. He can see the self-absorption. He can see the indifference to the poor and the marginalized. He can see the greed. He can see it all. And he's just as appalled by it. And yet, he freely forgives. Let's look at the the last few verses as we think about that forgiveness. The Pharisee, he turns around, looks at others and says, I know I'm in because you're out. The true Christian, the follower of Jesus, looks up at God and says, I know I'm in only because you forgive. I know I'm in because you forgive. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, the woman, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Who can forgive sins? God, only God. In Psalm 51, David summarizes the teaching of the whole Bible when he prays to God in humble confession, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, for all that we hurt others, ultimately, our sin is an offense against God. And so when Jesus speaks forgiveness to this woman, he is declaring that he is God. He's speaking with divine authority when he forgives her. After we uh, confess sins at church every week, as we will in a minute, we read what the Anglican liturgy calls the words of comfort. And they're always words from the Bible. Because as lovely as Nick is, after I've confessed my sin before God, it's not Nick I want to hear saying, don't worry, it's all right, you're forgiven. I need to hear it from God. And so it's his word we read. And wonderfully, one day, if you put your faith in him, in Jesus then like this woman, you will hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Only he won't say it to a small room of Pharisees. He'll say it to the whole cosmos. How wonderful to hear him say that over you, over me. Look, there's 
lots of misunderstandings about Christianity in the world. Lots and lots of them. But the biggest misunderstanding, the one that crops up again and again in every culture, is the misunderstanding between the two salvation stories we see in this, in this section of the Bible. The true one and the Pharisee one. And we all believe in a salvation story. Even if we reject what we think the Bible teaches, we all think, we all believe that the Bible has a version of salvation. I just wonder whether you've understood the right one. The true salvation story tells us of an infinitely holy God. It tells us of sin and guilt and undeserved forgiveness. The Pharisee salvation story is a twisted offshoot. It tells the story of a God whose standards are just low enough for us to to reach. It tells us the story of trying harder, not seeking forgiveness. The true story calls on me to stop looking around and to look up at the holy God and to examine the motivation and the desires inside my heart. The Pharisee story tells me to focus on outward actions that I can tick boxes for and measure. The true story lifts my eyes to the perfect man, Jesus, and turns my eyes inward to myself. It reveals the ugliness of my heart. It reveals the wickedness of my actions. Whereas the Pharisee story, it looks outwards. It compares me with others and finds people who are a bit worse I can look down on. So my sin is, well, it's never seen for what it is. It's only ever seen in comparison with other people. So I'm unmoved by its gravity, unmotivated to fight against it. The true story shows me God has reached down at unbelievable cost and paid for my sins through the death of his son on the cross. So I am freely forgiven, forever in debt to God, a debt he never asks me to repay. The Pharisee story, well, it encourages me to reach up And to think I'm paying for sins myself and think God is in my debt for all I have done. The true story gives me absolute reassurance that if I trust in Jesus Christ, I am 100% forgiven and guaranteed acceptance before God. Because Jesus has paid for every sin in his death on the cross. The Pharisee story leaves me plagued with doubt and fear as I desperately strive to do enough and never know whether I have. The Pharisee story, if you believe it, will make you self-reliant, self-absorbed and proud when things go well. And when things go bad, you'll be crushed and full of despair. But the true message of salvation rooted in the historical reality of Jesus' death in your place, well, it melts your heart as you see the awfulness of sin and are humbled by it. And the immeasurable kindness of a God who would reach out at that cost. It makes you humble. It makes you thankful. It makes you devoted to God. And it fills you with love for Jesus. And the wonderful thing is, if you're looking into Christianity, that's the true story. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ tonight, then your forgiveness is complete. You walk out free. You walk out with your debt paid. You walk out with eternal life guaranteed. In a minute, we're going to confess our sins together using the words inside um, your service sheets. 
Before we do that, we're going to have a minute or two of quiet so we can prepare ourselves. And I want us to do something. I want you to pray that by his Holy Spirit, God would reveal to you the ugly depths of your sin in all its twisted, dark corruption. But don't stop your prayer there. Pray too that as you confess those sins to God and as you hear the words of assurance and as we sing afterwards, God would fill you with the beautiful, immeasurable riches of his love for you in Jesus Christ as you see the cross once more.